Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name is Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode. If you're listening on Apple uh, Podcasts on that app, give us a follow and tap a five-star rating, drop a review. If you're listening over on Spotify, give us a follow there and hit the notification bell to never miss an episode. Um, and it, we're always happy to hear from you. Um, Nate at GreatStoryMinistries.com. Uh, send us a message there. Whether it's you like the show, we'd love to hear that. Uh, if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, we love ideas. Uh, if there's something that you're you're uh, wanting to uh, address that, that was talked about that we can clarify for you or, or move forward, you know, I love developing those ideas. Um, and sometimes things are missed. Uh, sometimes things are misunderstood. Send me a message. Um, we'll, we'll look at that. Nate at GraceStoryMinistries.com. Uh, on the show today, we have Ryan Waters. He's He doesn't need an intro. He's uh, been on here quite a bit, but we'll put a link in the show notes to more information about him. Um, but Ryan, welcome to Great Story Podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to be back. We're talking today. Uh, it's it's complex, and well, it's complex is in, uh, you know, the very nature of what it is, complex memories. Um, mm-hmm. Talking about, you know, when you're growing up, um, and you're, you're going through all the growing pains that everybody goes through. No one goes through childhood unscathed. That's the the phrase. Um, and sometimes it can be hard, uh, to, to think through and say, you know, well, if you were to ask the question of yourself, was my childhood overall good or was my childhood overall bad? Um, and you're like, well, it was overall good. Sure. Yeah. And then if you dig deeper, you start to uncover some things. And then it's like, okay, well, maybe I'm wrong. What, what is, maybe it's, maybe it's overall bad. And you're like, okay, well, no, then I think about some good things. And it's, you can get real complicated real quick and, and almost, I think it's safe to say, confused as to uh, maybe I don't want to delve into this because this is just making things complex. Maybe I just need to break and move on from here. So that's what we're talking about today. Whenever, Whenever it comes to these memories and what do you do with the good and the bad and the things that you're trying to work through, and to start things off and and throw it over to you, I think a, I think a good question might be, when it comes to positive and negative childhood memories, how do those shape your understanding of ourselves and the world around us, and also give us maybe a little uh, tangent of what are we talking about here when it comes to positive and negative? Like I didn't get the ice cream and then another time I did get the ice cream or, or what are we talking about? Great question. And it's, it can be hard to define good and bad, especially when we're operating out of a context where it's all we know, you know, it's usually not until later in life when we compare our experiences with other people's experiences uh, that we start to gain more clarity around what it was that we experienced in our childhood. So when we're talking about uh, good and bad, today we're going to be focusing more on when we say bad, not so much the the small disappointments, but more of the the unfortunate and often very distressing experiences that shape us and cause us to react in certain ways that may be 
are unhealthy or disproportionate uh, later in life. So uh, we'll use the word trauma a lot. When we use the word trauma, we're referring to those experiences that as children we found deeply distressing. And typically we found deeply distressing and we didn't have anywhere to turn to help us figure out what to do with it. So we had to figure it out on our own or just stuff it or kind of muddle through as best we knew how. And at the end of the day, that can lead to us internalizing a lot of errors, false narratives about ourselves, about the world that uh, we typically aren't equipped to make sense of as kids. And we are required to do, uh, required is a strong word, we have the opportunity to do as adults. So the things that really shape us early in life are exceptionally impactful. And I'll explain a little bit about what's going on. Part of it is biology and just the way we come into the world. And I won't get too deep here, but just the way our brains in particular function. So uh, in particular brain waves, when you are born into the world, your brain uses what's called delta waves, which as adults, it's kind of the same waves we use when we are in deep sleep. And so that's, for example, one of the reasons why babies have a really hard time staying awake. It's because their brains are in a very deep sleep state almost all of the time. And that persists till around two years. But also when we're there, we're, we're highly open to receiving messages about what reality is. And when we're between the ages of two and six, our brain waves change to what's called theta waves. And when you're in this state, you're really not able to think critically. You are highly imaginative. You are open to suggestion. Uh, it's, it's actually the same waves as when someone's put under hypnosis. It's that same idea of you, you really aren't thinking critically about the world. You're just downloading whatever's being told to you. And so this is one of the reasons why kids can be very gullible between two and six, it's because they're, they're in the downloading state. And so the messages that we're told about ourselves or about the world, we really don't think through, we just accept. So if we're told that we are, we're worthy of shame, or if we're told that we're not good enough, if we're told that we're only good when we're able to meet someone else's need, for example, then we're going to just adopt that as, okay, this is how the world functions. And when we, it's not until we become adults that we can start to tease out like, oh, that's actually kind of wrong <laughs> or a lot wrong. The reality is uh, kids just aren't in a space to, to think critically about the world. And then when we're between the ages of five and eight, we start to shift into alpha waves. And that's where analytical thinking really starts to happen. But kids in this age are kind of have a foot in both worlds. So they're, they're still kind of in that very deeply impressionable, highly receptive and accepting state. But they're starting to have more capacity to think through things from more analytical perspective. And then between ages 8 to 12 and then beyond into adulthood, we switch into beta 
waves, which is where that more critical thinking uh, skill comes into play. So what does that all mean? It means when we're super young, we're highly open to suggestive to suggestions, and we just accept and adopt what we're told about ourselves in the world. And so that's why those early years are so incredibly important for kids to be told the right messages. And if we're not told the right messages, then as adults, we have to go back and try and figure out what was truth and what was error. So we, we all go through these stages. It's biology. And as I'm hearing you talk through this, it, it makes me wonder. So you have people, even sometimes in the same family unit or at large, a community that are being exposed to the same types of experiences in a lot of ways. Um, but some uh, cling to, and I don't know if that's the right phraseology, or, or, or get stuck in or um, their brain remembers more uh a negative experience or a traumatic experience. Um, and so maybe within that understanding of what trauma is and the biology of what we go through in development, at least to age 12, what does that look like with, are there psychological mechanisms that may cause some individuals to cling more to a traumatic memory more strongly than a joyful one? Cause you have people come in, they'll be like, was it all bad? Uh, your experiences with me were they were they all terrible, or why why do you only bring up the bad ones? You know, it's like, well, you know, that's those, those were unfortunately my highlight. You know? Yeah, but then you yeah. have somebody else again that goes through and is like, I hear what you're saying, but I was there, and I all these joyful moments is what I remember about it. Sure, there was some bad mixed in there too, but you get mm-hmm. that stuff, and you just got so. How do, you, uh, how do you react to that kind of idea as I throw that out there into what you're saying uh, about the biology of development? Yeah, and that's a, another great question, but the, the answer's a little bit, uh, I would say, uh, complex to overuse that word, but maybe even ambiguous because in part it's the way our biology interacts with our environment. So some people do come into the world a little more I'll use a very different analogy. I'll say a little more excitable versus a little more relaxed or non-excitable. So maybe a a funny way to illustrate that. Um, My my kids are probably a a little bit more on the excitable end of the spectrum. And I'm very much on the easygoing, non-reactive side of the spectrum. So we were driving last night. And there was some deer off in a field. And I said, hey, guys, look, there's some deer over there. And so they got all excited about it. And then my daughter from the back seat asked me, she said, Dad, why did you say it that way? Just like, oh, there's some deer over there. Not like, oh, there's deer over there. Look at that. And I said, well, that's kind of just the way I came into the world. Uh, so someone with my disposition is going to react differently. Not, not better than, not less than but differently than someone who maybe comes into the world with a different biological predisposition. So it's very understandable that people who come from the same environment, grow up with the same experiences are going to respond very differently based on the way they came into the world, uh, their, their biology. Um, also, I think it's, it's probably important to recognize that even people who 
have very similar experiences don't have identical experiences. So, uh, and sometimes those those differences can be very subtle and not easily uh, identified by other people around them. But that small look that your dad gave you when he didn't give it to your sister, or that the fact that you got told more more frequently than somebody else, or or told yes more frequently than someone else, is going to shift in a subtle but important way how you view the world. So my rule of thumb is to give a lot of, uh, what's the right word, credence maybe, to people who say, well, I grew up in the family, but I experienced in the same family as my siblings, but I experienced it very differently. Well, yeah, that's probably quite true based on the biology and your the subtle nuances of what it was like for you to grow up within that family unit. And that's beyond tough to try to walk through. Yeah. Um, whether it's a, a, a friend, a family member, uh, an authority figure, a parent, an entire community group that you're a part of, as you start kind of voicing your experience um, in safe places and then maybe move out to like, hey, this was what I experienced here, you can get a lot of pushback. And pushback yeah. is like a light, <laughs> a light way to say it. Um, and it can be... There, there can be times where it's almost turning it around to where, why are you bringing this up and, and rocking the boat? Oh, you're yeah. bringing this up now? Why didn't you bring it up back then? Why didn't you just tell me or tell us or, you know, insert whatever yeah. your particular situation is there? Why didn't you, why didn't you speak up? Um, yeah. You know, or, you know, why are you acting so emotional about this? This is not that big of a deal. That's bygone history. And almost whitewash the past in a little way or reframe it, um, which yeah. can be dysregulating for for someone as they're expressing something that is true uh, in in their life and how they experience something. And, and it can be, well, maybe I'm remembering it wrong. And, and, and that's like at the very core of what we're talking about, the complexity of it, because you, you don't want to remember the bad stuff. So this might... this this is kind of comfortable, more comfortable, like, well, maybe I'm just remembering it wrong. But then that yeah. in itself is dysregulating too. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's, there's a couple things that come to mind. There are many factors that may influence someone's hesitancy to hear your story and validate it, particularly if it seems different or somehow sheds light on their own experience. And so if you are going to share your own experience and it contradicts their, theirs, then it means that they're going to have to reckon with that and try and incorporate that different experience into their own worldview and understanding of their past. And that's, that's uncomfortable. That's hard. You don't want to do it. And so it makes sense that they're going to, unless they have done some of their own work and have the capacity to leave space for other people to have their own experiences, they're going to try and fit you back into the mold that they have you in or that they have your family in because it's easier psychologically for them. It doesn't require as much effort. And to be blunt, sometimes this can almost result in gaslighting, which is denying your reality. 
So uh, one thing I suggest people do is some very deep identity work to understand who really are you? Who did you come into the world as? And how did that person get shaped by the environment that you grew up in? And learn to validate that without requiring it to be true of everybody else around you. Because then you kind of commit the same error that they are, which is demanding that your experience is what their experience has to be. So well done. This should allow for you to have a deep acceptance and ownership of your own story while leaving space for other people to have their own ownership of their stories. And admittedly, sometimes when you have very differing views of, let's say, early attachment figures, you're talking to your brother, your sister, and you're like, no, mom wasn't that way, or dad wasn't that way, or aunt so-and-so, or uncle so-and-so wasn't that way. Well, maybe. And hold on to your own, maybe it's an overused word, but hold on to your own truth there and give space for them to have their own too. Yeah, that's difficult. Sidebar here for anybody that just heard that there are separate truths. and No, there there are very much truths and we hold to, you know, Wesley Arminian values and all all, all that good stuff. Yes, I do believe Truth is truth and we're not changing that. Um, But when it comes to your story and your experiences, uh, the way you experience things, that, man, you you hit on, on something tough there because then as you work through and do a lot of work and go back and relearn uh, some things and retrain. And you want people to perceive you now in a way that you see yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not as if other people are concrete in their development. Someone I met 10 years ago and I don't see him now and I walk up to him now after 10 years, they're not the same person, but in my mind, that is the person I am going to is the one I met 10 years ago. Um, and for people coming into your life, if you've done a lot of work and you've, you're, you have these conflicting memories and you've worked through a lot of this stuff there, yeah, they're not going to be viewing you as, Oh, I can see you've done a lot of work. There's a new paint job on, on Ryan. I see that (laughs) the exterior. No, it's not going to be like that. Yeah. I actually had someone reach out to me. This was a year or so ago and just say like, Hey, I've, you know, I've, I've been watching you at a distance and you seem different than the Ryan that I knew, you know, literally eight to 10 years ago. Like, can you help me understand that? And I said, well, I've experienced a lot of life and done a lot of my own kind of healing work, hopefully, and been on my own journey. So yeah, I like the way you put it, we're not static. We are constantly shifting and evolving, uh, hopefully towards a more accurate understanding of reality. So that is going to gonna shift. And one way I like to view this too is almost uh, think of a, a triangle. And at the very top of that triangle is big R reality. Reality as God sees it from his perspective. Absolute truth. Well, if we assume that we have that at all times, then we're kind of shifting out of humanity and into divinity. And that can be a very dangerous thing. I think human beings have little our reality, which is our best attempt to understand big our reality from God's perspective. And so we should hold on to that because it is our best understanding of that big our reality, but also it should 
baked into that allow for some humility to be curious about someone else's little R reality, uh, their reality as they best see it. Uh, that humility piece while holding on to our own perspective is part of what I think a healthy mindset really entails. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, a quote by Tiffany Yecky Brooks where she says, and this is more on religious identity, um, but I think it applies to what you're talking about there. If your religious identity hinges entirely on absolute doctrinal rightness, evangelism can only mean convincing others of your rightness too. Mm. She says, after all, if you're one of the few people special enough to have figured out God, the only way to win more souls to God is to get them to replicate your steps exactly so that they too can crack the code. Um, and it's easy to read something like that and be like, yeah, I see others out there and that's them. But you gotta, you're, you're I like what you're saying. You got to turn it around, not only on doctrinal things, religious identity, but now in your personal life, as I'm working through things, conflicting memories, my experiences, am I now, I, I don't think inflicting is the right word, but projecting out on others you need to view me in this way too, and your experiences need to match mine as they are now. It's a very human thing to do. It's very easy oh, yeah. to get into that. Yeah. We uh, we joke that my, my daughter, she actually just turned eight, so she's kind of at that analytical space where she's trying to figure out, you know, what reality is, and we, we kind of joke that she's the reality police. You know, if something isn't exactly as she perceives it or if something... If you misspeak at all, she will be very quick to point it out to you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, valuing that part of her while trying to help her understand that just because she sees it that way doesn't mean that that is the only way it can be viewed. That's, that's a really challenging thing. And I don't think that's just something that we wrestle with when we're eight. I think it's something that we continue to wrestle with uh, as we, as we grow. Yeah. I, I, without going too far down that road, I, I do think you're right in that, you know, sometimes I feel like I, I, we're acting, at least me in my experience, I'm acting out of certain developmental stages of myself, yes. you know, it, it, which is yes. a, a good as I'm going through those experiences, it's good to maybe write it down and be like, hmm, this, 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 um, uh, dysregulated, this developmental stage of myself, maybe there's something I can go back and work through in my eight to 12, let's go there, my eight to 12 area where everything is concrete and it is what it is. And why can't, what do you, what is nuance and why are we bringing that in here? Because it is what it is. I see it. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, yeah. And if that's something that continually gets triggered in me, hmm, maybe I need to go back and visit what, what's going on during that stage or my experiences, what were the voices speaking into my life? Um, but to pull it back to what we're talking about here, that, the, the conflicting memories and what do you do with that? You have uh, some some moments where you need those strategies as to what we're talking about. The strategies to help kind of honor the positive memories um, while, you know, with an abusive family member or friend or a community even without minimizing the impact of abuse because it can feel like, oh, sure, forgive and forget, see of forgetfulness, I've heard it all, but like it's not that easy for me. You don't know what happened yeah. to me, um, yeah. and we don't. Um, so let's go, let's go there with maybe some strategies as we're, yes, I need to honor the good memories, but what do I do with that? How do I do that while also not minimizing 
this impacted me. This experience impacted me so much so that I'm sitting here listening to two men on a podcast talk about this. And I'm like, yeah, I get this. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Quick side note about something you said about forgiveness earlier. I just heard a quote from C.S. Lewis where he said, everybody thinks forgiveness is a wonderful idea until you have something to forgive. <laughs> like, yep, I feel that. That's I true. get it. You know, when we look back, it can be really uh, difficult to have, have a, an understanding of what was reality, what wasn't. And so a couple of strategies that can be really helpful is doing some deep work to understand what healthy actually looks like. And sometimes, well, not sometimes, almost always, we have to go outside of our current understanding to gain some perspective of what that looks like. So uh, working with a therapist to figure out what do kids really need and how does that understanding match with what I really got. Uh, there's a, a book called Gifts from a Challenging Childhood that, um, that also dives into that and it looks at some of our, our core issues or sometimes people call them birthrights. Like we, we have a right to be uh, valued, not for what we can do, but for who we are. We have a right to be able to depend on our caregivers. And when that doesn't happen, what are the effects of that? So one strategy for learning or for starting the process of making sense of your past is to gain some, uh, a healthy rubric, maybe I'll put it that way to, to gauge is what I got, uh, as I compare it to my more complete understanding of what healthy looks like, what were, what went well and what didn't. And I'm going to throw out a statistic here that is not a real statistic. This is just purely anecdotal, okay? So I'll say 95% of caregivers do the best they can with what they got. They're not trying to inflict harm intentionally, but many times they do. There is that 5% that is just, uh, for, I'll, I'll overstate it for dramatic effect. They're just, they operate out of a almost a sense of evil. They want to harm other people. And they can be, uh, I don't mean this in a spiritual sense, I mean this more in a clinical sense, like sadistic in the way they engage with the world. And that those, those are often the ones you hear about on the news. And that can be a little scary. But by and large, caregivers do the best they can with what they got. And so how do I look at, let's operate with that 95%. How do I look back and say, yeah, my parents did the best they could with what they had, with the, the hand that they were dealt from their own parents. And on the, I'm also going to balance that out with the fact that the ways their brokenness bled over into my own life still affects me. And so it's almost this balancing act of holding compassion for your caregivers while acknowledging the fact that their brokenness created baggage that you now have to carry. And as I said before, one way of helping to understand that is gaining a better picture of what healthy looks like, comparing that to your early experiences, maybe even understanding where your parents or, or how their brokenness 
showed up in your life. Well, let me ask you this. Cause I can, I, I hear in my head the question as, as you're saying that, like, so wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that in order to fully understand where I'm at in my reality in the world and how I interact with it, not only do I have to go back and look at my story and analyze it, but now you're saying I need to go do the work of my parents in a way to look through their story and sift through that and be like, okay, going back into my genealogy to uh, this, that, and the other, like, yeah, they did the best they could, um, but I don't want to go through their story too. Uh, what, what would you say to that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely not suggesting that you have to go down, go back and sit down and interview your parents and understand all of their stuff necessarily. But there's this, there's a tool called a genogram, which basically goes back into at least three or four generations and says like, what were the relationships like? Because the truth is woundedness often, I would say always doesn't start with just us in our generation. Generational trauma rolls downhill. And unless one person decides to stand up to that boulder, push it back and find what to do with it, then it continues to roll downhill. And many times we get bowled over by it as kids. So I'm not suggesting that you have to do your parents' work for them. That would be impossible. And it would frustrate you and leave you stuck. So your own healing is not contingent upon your caregiver's healing or the, even just the other influencers, even if they weren't your uh, immediate caregivers. Uh, otherwise, that would leave us in that stuck victim stage, and that's, that's not reality. What I'm looking at is more of understanding where did I really come from? Not just mom and dad, but uh, all the, back farther than that. What were the early influences that get passed down from one generation to the next? One of my favorite quotes uh, is generational trauma rolls through families like wildfire from one tree to the next, to the next, to the next, until one generation finds the courage to stand up, turn around and face the fire. And what I'm suggesting is that you be that tree that stands up, turns around and faces the fire and figures out where is this coming from? Why does my family react in this in this way. So a, a common way would be, uh, why am I so deeply threatened whenever someone challenges my perspective of what's true or not? Why can't I allow truth to stand for itself and not have to convince everybody else around me? Well, it, it might look uh, like a deep sense of insecurity. And we have to hold to this belief of certainty around all things in order for me to feel safe in the world. Okay, so I'm not sure that I want to have to be certain about everything in the universe in order for me to feel safe. There are other ways for me to feel safe, uh, particularly healthy relationships, ultimately with, with the Father, with God, uh, but with other people. Okay, if I let go of that need for certainty in order to feel safe and instead find that within healthy relationship, then I can handle uncertainty better than I could previously in 
and better than my family could historically. Yeah, that that's deep. That's deep. Uh, and I, I think as you go back and look at those things, uh, again, not doing the work for someone because now you're, you're crossing a boundary that, that you should not yes. be crossing. Right. But that can, as you look through someone's story as objectively as you can to simply glean, uh, data is a dry word, but you know, data, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. objective data, it can, it, you have compassion maybe for those that are living that story. And in yeah. some ways, uh, whether it's a community or or an individual, they're still yeah. living through that story. Um, if I can throw yeah. in one other piece there, when I say compassion, I'm not suggesting that you start at this deep place of compassion necessarily. Sometimes that compassion only comes after you've gone through the grief and the anger and the sadness and the fear and then compassion comes typically out of a place of acceptance. So when I say that, I'm talking about the end stage, not the beginning stage. So don't, please don't allow that, that word to throw you off or to feel like it's insurmountable. Uh, you can only get to compassion after you've done the work of grief. Well, I, uh, I th- a great... I, a thought on that because I think sometimes it can it can vacillate between a few different things of like in this moment I I'm accepting uh, and yeah it is what it is or like uh, then then the next you'll find yourself the next day like actually I'm angry about that today and I don't accept that and what's wrong yeah. with me it can it can turn you can turn it in on yourself of yeah oh I should be at the end stage I have climbed it it sounds like you're talking <laughs> about that climbing the the metaphor people like to use for climbing the ladder of grief and you reach the top yeah. rung and you're like, yes, I did it. And now I've attained a higher plane of consciousness. Um, yeah. and, and I know in that episode we talked more about, you know, you bounce around in a box with, uh, with the grief and some days are yes. good. Some days are bad. Um, it makes me want to go to, go to that of there, there is, there, there's, there does seem to be grief involved. Um, especially there's, let, let's let's put it in the context of a family because um, we've, mm-hmm. we've mentioned that a lot. But I think this can also apply to a group uh, that you've belonged to, whether that's a, a church group or a friend group, uh, mm-hmm. any type of good, close-knit uh, community, which is so important. Um, but as you navigate through some of these complex emotions, uh, the, the, the memories that are complex of good and bad, toxic environments, there's still a longing for relationship with the family member, the individuals, the system, the community, that in a lot of ways, those, those things were abusive and toxic. So let me phrase it this way. How can individuals navigate the complex emotions of, of longing for that relationship with the family member, the individual, the community, the system that was toxic and abusive while also recognizing the need for personal safety, well-being, all those good things that are, are they, they help regulate you and you're not in a constant state of, of dysregulation. Um, how do you go about that? Well, I want to start a little bit psychoeducation here, a little bit of a psychoeducation input. When babies come into the world, actually, while they're still in the womb, 
they are craving safe attachment. That is a biological predisposition. And so we come literally hardwired to seek out attachment. And when we don't get that, like literally if you were born and you were never touched, there was no physical connection, there was no human interaction, there's a very real possibility that you would physically die. So we almost as a a survival mechanism need and crave attachment. And because of that, we will attach to pretty much anything, no matter how good or bad that attachment is. It sounds like the book, Are You My Mom? with (laughs) I'm not familiar. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Are you my mom? Are you my mom? Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. So that's why many times you you see kids who uh, maybe from the outside looking in, you can see the ways that their caregivers are maybe even harming them, but their kids desperately want to be with them. And it's in part because that's that survival mechanism coming into play. Um, so when we, when we come into the world, we don't have the ability to understand what's healthy and what's not. We just know this is what it is. And this is my lifeline, this person. And if this person harms me, sometimes uh, we don't think of it in these terms, but I don't really have any other choice and it's better than nothing. And many times uh, to try and I would say reduce as much uh, psychological dissonance, we will whitewash our parents' behavior because it's too hard to accept that their behavior is actually harming us. It's easier to delude ourselves into believing that this person is actually doing something uh, good when in reality they may be harming us. So that, that longing is something that I really want to validate. Because sometimes when, when you start looking back, some people actually take on a sense of shame. Like, man, when I was five and my mom did this or my dad did that or even my coach or my teacher did this or that, why didn't I stand up or why didn't I call them out for that or why didn't? No, because you were in a state where you... We're depending on this connection for a sense of survival and you were not able and probably would not have even been appropriate safety wise for you to threaten that attachment. So look back with a sense of compassion or at your younger self for doing what was needed to keep you physically and certainly emotionally alive. But there's also times when, as we grow up and we look at what didn't go well, we have to look back with a sense of grief. And uh, maybe grief can be a, you know, go back and visit that, that episode we did way back when about grief. Uh, but grief is, is not this linear process where we clearly move from one stage to the next. We will be angry and then we'll bargain and try and say, well, maybe, maybe if I'd done this differently, then this would have happened, or maybe this is really my fault, or, and then you, you end up in depression, then you end up back in anger, 
and eventually you arrive at a place of acceptance again, and then you drop back out of it. Then you come back to acceptance. Uh, but that grief is something that has to be faced and you have to grieve what uh, you wanted, but didn't get. And after you've done that, then you can have, it's easier. I'll put it that way. It's easier to look back in a more holistic fashion and see the good and the bad uh, of what you got or didn't get. And also the last thing I'll say is you also get to experience new attachments with new people that help you kind of uh, be able to compare like, oh man, you know, with my husband or my wife now, I don't have to get it right every time. And even though that's kind of mind boggling for me, I know it feels very different than what I had growing up. And what does that mean for me? Like, what does that mean as I look at my past and, and what I really probably needed, but didn't even know I needed at the time. So, uh, Finding those new safe attachment figures in the present is a really, really critical step towards healing. In fact, I was having a conversation with a colleague the other day and I was talking about just some, some things I was working through and processing. And I said, you know, I think the, the healing here has to come relationally. I know all the right things. You know, I, I help other people work through these things, but the healing for my own struggle in this particular area is going to have to be relational because the wound is relational. Uh, Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And one of the hard things about that developing new attachments is, is going through your toolbox that you have of how you um, interact with others, how you react to certain situations, what keeps you safe as an individual um, mm-hmm. and sometimes what keeps your reality safe that you've created, but that's a whole nother episode, uh, yep. <laughs> as you're going through those things, you know, there, there's going to be things now that you are, it's, they're unhelpful yeah. as a tool for you to interact with the world. They did keep you safe. There's a part of that. And I'm not speaking as a professional. It is just my experience. They did help you through moments that you should not have gone through. As, as a human being, yeah. as an image bearer of God, these things should not have happened to you. Um, but you developed ways of coping with it that kept you safe as you could be and helped you yeah. move forward in a way that uh, you could try to flourish as much as you could uh, in those yeah. moments. And you adapted that. But again, now they're, they're hampering your relationships. They're keeping other people out. And sometimes keeping people out is good. Kind of shift into that as you develop boundaries. We talk a lot about boundaries on this show. But, man, it gets complex when you you feel the need uh, after, yeah, going through a lot of work. Uh, You feel the need maybe to establish a boundary with a family member, a community, friends uh, who have, have caused trauma. And yet there's still that underlying feeling of love and attachment there. Because let's put it in the context of a family, you do have attachment there. Uh, It may be a traumatic attachment, but you have an Mm -hmm. attachment. You have things that you can point back to. And over time, you have, I accentuate the positive. 
this is how we get mm-hmm. through. Uh, don't talk about the elephant in the room. That's not good. Um, when you're in the, the bad times, just duck your head and maybe leave the house and get through as best you can. And then when the good times, really enjoy the good times because the good times are good and, and, and the cycle is going to happen again. Let me ask you this within that context. How can you establish boundaries with a family member, a community who has caused trauma and what boundaries maybe need to be established there while you also have this complex thing, what we're talking about today, feelings of love and attachment. I have those memories of love and attachment at times, but it was very, very inconsistent and dysregulating. And now in life, my, my relationships are inconsistent and dysregulated (laughs) moving forward. What does that look like? Well, we never outgrow our need for connection, our need for attachment. Good. And if we don't have current safe attachments with people who are genuinely safe, it's going to be hard for us to put in place and maintain boundaries with our original attachment figures who may remain unsafe. So and before you probably even are able to practice boundaries in a healthy way, you have to have a safe place now. That is, even if, for example, this, your caregivers do say, I'm not going to honor your boundaries or I'm going to withdraw, that you're not going to be left stranded emotionally. You're going to have a tribe around you, to use that term, that you can rely on. So a prerequisite to putting those boundaries in place may be making sure that you have safe attachments elsewhere that you can rely on in that process and and that they can support you in this boundary setting stage. So putting boundaries in place with early attachment figures, whether it be parents or siblings or aunts, uncles, extended family, whatever, it can be, a very sticky process. And I have a lot of empathy for what that, what that can look like. Um, I think one thing that you can do now is look at what do I need to thrive? Can I heal with the current level of interaction with this person? Can I heal without putting some boundaries in place that say, hey, I need to expand my bubble a little bit to give me more capacity and reprieve in order to to heal. And then you have to put the boundary at wherever that, that need for capacity is. So if that's saying, hey, I need to pull back on always being at each other's houses or I'm not going to be able to be at every family function, or, hey, I'm not going to be able to have that phone call every day or every week. I, I need some, some space to, to process. Okay, that person probably isn't going to like that. But if they respect you and your healing, they'll honor it. Liking boundaries and honoring boundaries are two very different things. So whenever someone reacts negatively to a healthy, realistic boundary that you put in place, 
instead of internalizing that as I did something wrong, use it as information about how that person feels about you. So uh, I can't remember who said this, but it always kind of stuck with me. Pay attention to people's reactions to your boundaries because someone's lack of honoring of that boundary or their heightened reactivity to you putting that boundary in place kind of teaches you the edges of their respect for you. And I may not like it, certainly as my kids grow older, if they say, hey, I need space from you. That's going to hurt. I'm not going to enjoy that. But if I respect them, I'm going to say, okay, then I'm going to... I'm going to keep an open posture towards them. I'm not going to take a posture that says, well, I'm just going to take my toys and go home then. Forget this. (laughs) You know, I'm going to stay open and curious about that. And, but I'm going to say, yeah, okay, well, that's hard to hear, but I love you and I'm not going anywhere. And I want to continue having this conversation whenever you are able. Yeah, that's, that's tough because I feel like, um, I feel like some people, and there's probably some study about this somewhere, but I feel like some, it's hard to uh, move your children into the adult realm at, at any point. Like you just go through life. These are my kids and like you can almost kind of own them in a way, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. It, that's where you get these stories of the mother-in-law's stereotype coming over and just busting into the, the, the house and starting to clean and like, you know, the, it's yeah. the, the boundaries. It's hard to yeah. let go of, we're in a different relationship here, certainly honoring mother and father, et cetera, et cetera. But it is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think too, as, I, go ahead. I was going to say, and I don't think that transition ever happens without some level of discomfort. Uh, that's just, I mean, welcome to human development. That's kind of the way it's been since the beginning of time, I'm sure. Um, so try not to assume or, or label that discomfort as something's wrong. Discomfort is a part of growth. And so anytime there's a transition in that relationship, it requires a transition in the family system. And family systems kind of function like... Um, uh, like when you get your your wheel balanced on your car, you know, a very small weight difference can actually throw your wheel out of balance. And anytime someone shifts, someone changes, it, it shifts the weight balance in the wheel. And it's going to start to wobble a little bit until you figure out where that, how that weight's going to interact with this new uh, movement and it finds a new equilibrium. So... Again, not all discomfort is bad when it comes to putting these boundaries in place. It just means that there's growth happening. And that can be scary, but it's worth the effort. Yeah, it brings it brings my mind back around to something we were talking about earlier as we um, you know, you can you can almost swing the pendulum of uh, going all the way into joyous memories or swing it back to, well, I'm going to now accentuate the negative and we're going to live in the real. Yeah. We're going to live in what actually happened and, you know, almost the the sentiment may feel like rubbing, rubbing a dog's nose in their accident in the carpet. You know, you're, you're going to, you're going to know. Um, And there, I don't know if the right word is balance, but there's certainly a challenge. I guess I would ask, are there benefits to trying to 
make a a integration of these memories, um, a coherent personal narrative of these memories where you have uh, certainly you recognize you have good good things going on. You recognize there were bad things that happened. Um, you recognize the good without, uh, you know, dishonoring the impact of those negative traumatic things. So just to rephrase, what, what are those challenges and maybe what are the benefits of integrating traumatic and joyous memories into that coherent personal narrative? And where in the world would you start with that? (laughs) Yeah. I'd probably start with a lot of empathy for the, the discomfort and the, even the distress that comes from having to shift the way you look at what happened to you. Um, back to what I, what I said earlier about we, we want to believe the best because psychologically it's less distressing for us. And many times as kids, we, we have to have that, uh, that particular mindset in order to stay functional in the world. You know, if we, if we recognize that we're living in an environment that is completely chaotic, that we have no control, that everyone's out to get us, uh, you know, there's some, maybe some elements of truth in that in our, in our early years, but to almost accept that would be too overwhelming. And we, we would literally just kind of collapse inside. So instead we, we choose to, believe almost this false narrative as a survival skill. Well, that false narrative isn't without its own consequences. It often leaves us vulnerable uh, to continued harm from people in the future. It can leave us very reactive to things, which side note, anytime that you have a reaction that's disproportionate to the event, like, wow, that really made me scared or man, that really made me angry that more than it should have than based on what happened. All right. Then that's kind of the, the red pointing arrow saying, look deeper here. There's something here to look at until we've made sense of our past. Then we tend to live out of those unhealthy, uh, that unhealthy worldview that keeps us reactive and often unhealthy ways in the present. So one of the benefits of going back and, and looking at the past is it allows us to be more functional in the present. It allows us to have healthier relationships with other people in their present. And back to that fire analogy, it when we stand up, turn around and face the fire, then we no longer pass on, or at least not to the same degree, uh, that developmental wounding that wants to keep rolling through the family system. Let, let me ask this as we're talking about this, because I, I feel I, this is, this is what you want. This is what you, these are the benefits. This is what you want going into that. That makes sense to me. Like that's what I'm working towards, right? That I like that. Yeah. But then for some, you may think of, okay, yeah, but when I go back to those pain points, there's a reason why I accentuate the positive. There's a reason why yeah. I dwell on, I'm going to look at the joyous things. I'm going to look at the good and I'm going to celebrate the relationship that I have now for what it is. Bygones be bygones. Because when I go back to the dark places, when I go back to the moments in my life that were so 
I just could not stand the the dysregulation that happened to me. Like I, I'm not going to be able to integrate that. So let me ask you this: as you're talking, I yes, I want to get to. I can hear some say, "Get to the point you're talking about." But how do I integrate those moments together into a coherent personal narrative without getting heightened reactivity, like you're talking about, without getting overwhelmed? Uh, is that even possible for some people where I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to explode every time. You just got to know. Yeah. A couple things come to mind. One is you have to have safe relationships in the present to help you regulate. There's self-regulation and co-regulation. And I think you need safe relationships to help you co-regulate in the moment. And that's where, you know, like I was saying earlier, if you don't have those safe places in the present to run to, then trying to look back and deal with the past is going to be exceptionally challenging, if not impossible, psychologically. Um, But you also have to have a good toolkit of self-regulation tools. So uh, I'm a proponent of attachment-focused EMDR. And some of the skills in there are is what's called resourcing, which is where you identify kind of a peaceful place you can go to in your mind's eye or what are some wise figures, uh, protector figures, um, nurturing figures that you can pull up in your mind's eye and help you feel calmer and safer. There's skills like heart-focused breathing, heart math, uh, which uses uh, kind of a mindfulness skill that actually helps you calm your heart rate in such a way that it moves you into what's called a higher state of coherence. So if you just, there's lots of material out there on heart math. You can, you can look that up. Um, Other things like uh, box breathing, uh, which is a a really cool skill. And actually I'll just take a second and teach that now because it takes, doesn't take very long at all. You, you breathe in four-second increments while you are imagining that you're drawing the four sides of a box. So when you inhale, you're drawing that first side of the box. Inhale four seconds, first side. When you exhale, you draw the second side of that box. Exhale for four seconds while you draw that second side. Inhale four seconds, that third side. Exhale four seconds, that fourth side. And you just keep doing that for a few times. Quick side story, I was actually teaching that to someone one day and he started chuckling. He said, oh, that's what they teach you in sniper school. Like, oh, okay, well, that's really good to know. <laughs> um, so there, it it's obviously has a wide variety of, uh, of applications, but it can be a tool to help you when you're starting to get very escalated internally to get out of that spiral and back into the present. Because the way our brain works, we can't be in two places at the same time. You know, the idea of multitasking is a bit of a myth in that you can focus on two things at the same time. You're just, you're switching back and forth very quickly when you're multitasking well, so to speak. So what happens with very distressing experiences is we get caught in this anxiety loop in this fear and it, sometimes it can put us back into that young state where we feel as vulnerable, threatened and scared as we did when we were six, eight, ten. And so finding a way to bring you back into the present 
and say, actually, I'm, I'm 23 or I'm 38 and I'm safe. I'm in my own home. I'm in my, sitting in my comfy recliner and I don't have to be afraid right now. When you have a skill that reminds you of that reality enough that you can feel calm again, then you start to feel safe and your body calms down and you're able to see reality a little more clearly than you could when you're reacting out of that early state. That can be so, so you have to have a wide variety of those tools in order to do this work well. Well, I imagine you know, <clears throat> a wide variety because when you spend a couple decades in, you know, some situation uh, that you that is your normal, it, that's going to move on into life for you. And, and I know the people yeah. that listen to this particular podcast are not generally the type of people that are saying, "Well, I don't need this stuff. I I live in the present. I don't I don't go back to those memories. That's that's my strategy." Just but there may be an element of that for some listening of I avoid those memories. Um, and that is my yeah. strategy. But I, I would say to that, your body's really good at keeping you safe. And so yeah. whether you go back to the point of impact for the trauma or not, your mm-hmm. body is constantly looking out for you to not go back to that point of trauma. And yeah. so you're on hyper alert, hyper vigilance, and you're using tools do not experience that again. And there's moments where your body may think, not consciously, but your body may think, I'm in that situation, all the telltale signs. And that's where you get that, like, why am I experiencing this feeling? And I have no idea. Nothing's going on today. I'm like, this is a good day. Like, yeah. Yeah. where did this come from? That's that's the red flag, too, where it's like, okay, there's something that I can develop a tool or get rid of a tool or go back and visit a place of impact that was impactful mm-hmm. for me and maybe not so much for those around me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that, that piece. Um, because what, uh, I can't remember who said this, um, but they said what, what we refuse to face us controls us just as surely as what we choose to focus on. And so, Carl Young and others throughout uh, throughout the field had developed this idea of our, our kind of our shadow self, like the part of us that carries pain that we really don't want to face. And if we refuse to face it, then we live reactive to it, even if it's not part of our our daily conscious thinking. Think of it as this uh, this idea of holding a beach ball underwater. And this beach ball is all the pain from your past that you you don't really want to face. But I'm just going to put it under the surface and I'm not going to think about it. And uh, I'm just going to keep it there. Well, if you ever try to hold a beach ball underwater, you typically can't do it very long. You know, your strength's going to give out and it's going to come shooting back up through that water. And so that's a bit of what that reactivity is. It's uh, that pain coming back to the surface. What I'm suggesting is when we actually take that beach ball from out under the water, we look at it, we figure out where it came from, it actually deflates it. And then we don't have to live constantly trying to push something under the surface. We actually are able to to move about in the pool of life more effectively than we could without that. Well, it makes me think of too, you know, the doom scrolling and, and uh, when you have some important task in, 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 in the house and you're like, 
well, I got everything done except for the laundry. And it's because my need to do the laundry that I got everything else done. Cause I, you know, the, <laughs> constantly distracting yourself. Yeah. And it makes me think of when, when there's important work to be done in your life to be cohesive and integrated and healthy so that you can be the best you can be not in a way where it's performative and you know like i have to be these things so i have value but just so you can feel yeah feel well and and interact with those in your life that you love and they love you and you can do that in the best way so it's 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 hard to maybe do the things it takes to get there and it you can you can distract from it um uh, the pastor of my church, Kyle Eidelman, he once said something along the lines of, um, a distraction can be a good thing that interferes with a better thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to, to do good things. Um, but whenever there's something you maybe need to go deeper on, um, yeah. or you need to work on, you can, you can make life real busy with some, a lot of good things. To keep from yeah. working on that or make excuses like i i'd say into my story all the time you know i made all the excuses in the world not to not to work on myself when it came to going to a therapist even up until yeah. including well no we need this money for the children the children's mm-hmm. needs come before it. but when you start placing value on the relationships you're going to be in they're going to be better uh your relationship with god because let's be honest you take the same mind to God that you take to your other relationships and you walk through life. You don't just get to flip into God mode. Ah, this is a better, you will have a better relationship with God through the renewing of your mind, but you got to understand your mind, how it works, how it developed, how it is right now. Um, There's so, there's so much more to go down that road, uh, getting on a tangent, but we we're out of time, but I always like to, at the end of these, you know, this, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the great story uh, listening community and wh- whatever it is you have uh, that, that you want to share with them, something you've been thinking about lately or something we've talked about, um, whatever it may be to leave them with as, as they go into, you know, this, this next week and they're working on their journey of restoration um, from Ryan. What would that be? Yeah. I think I would throw out one of my favorite quotes and something I've said on here many times and it's from uh, M. Scott Peck he says mental health is a commitment to reality at all cost we have to face the truth and I genuinely believe that the truth does set you free one of my colleagues says the truth does set you free but it tends to make you miserable first (laughs) and there's some truth to that but I think we never have to be afraid of the truth God's not afraid of the truth the only piece I would add to that is we don't have to face the truth alone. And when we have a safe, supportive system around us, even if it's just one or two people that say, hey, I'm going to be here with you no matter what. I'm your ride or die. And I'm, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to try and fix it for you. I'm just going to be a safe place for you to land as you're wrestling with this. That makes all the difference in the world when you're looking back at the past and trying to make sense of what happened to you. And it's worth it. It is so worth it. So a very different uh, source for this information, Bruce Springsteen uh, said, we can be ghosts or ancestors. 
and our kids' lives. And he means that in the sense of we can be these wraith-like figures, these shadowy figures that we're kind of afraid to look at, or our kids will be afraid to look at, or we can find the courage to show up and say, hey, I'm imperfect, here's, here's what I know to be true about me, and I'm open to learning more. I want to be that kind of a person. I want to be the kind of person that my kids can look back on and say, I know what I've been given, and it's been good. It wasn't perfect, but it was good. And there was a, an honesty and humility and a, a willingness to engage. And even if it was uncomfortable, Dad found the courage to do that, to show up in the best way he knew how. And I can only do that effectively when I find the courage to figure out where I came from. And I find the courage to look back and figure out what are the forces that shaped me and what do I want to persist? What do I want to keep passing down and what do I need to say, nope, this ends with me. And I think that's why this this work is so incredibly important. Yes, it's important for us in the here and now and we're worth that. But I really want my kids to have as little baggage as possible. And if I'm gonna do that effectively, then it's time for me to find the courage to step up and face where I came from. That's so good. And and it's it an integrated it, an integrated mind is a healthy mind. Yes. Um, the wholeness. A lot of times when you run across that word in scripture of perfect or perfection, it, it's actually meaning, as I understand it, wholeness. Not like mm-hmm. you never made any type of error. Um, it certainly does mean that in other ways. Uh, other places but a lot of ways it's wholeness integration and that leads to well-being and from what we've talked about today you know it's it's not about uh saying i i had a lot of good memories but i had a lot of bad memories but it's i had good memories and i had bad memories and i understand after walking through a lot of work that those integrated and a through line creates a lot of understanding and understanding and acknowledging processing those various aspects of your experiences your emotions leading to a sense of of that wholeness and that well-being we may need to have a part two to this conversation because there's this whole other section about integrating the left and right hemispheres of the brain and trauma often gets stored in the right hemisphere which is not connected to language, logic, linear thought. It's, am I safe? Am I not? And trauma work really does, and use the, the, the perfect word there, uh, integrates. Tra- uh, trauma work integrates the left and right hemispheres of, of the brain in a way that says, oh, I can look back and not get immediately plunged into flight or freeze. I can look back almost in a way that's informational. Sure, there's going to be some ecologically appropriate sadness or regret or just heaviness around it at times, but it's not going to be that controlling, reactive, I'm panicky and I have to get out of my body experience. Um, and I, I want to be careful here. Yes, I am a counselor, so I know I'm biased and I think counseling can be really effective and helpful, but I'm not saying that counseling is the only way possible to heal. There are, there are 
many avenues that God has used throughout the centuries to bring healing to the lives of his people. But counseling can be a really good way to find someone who undoubtedly, without wavering, has your best interest in mind and has enough objectivity to help you work through your pain. So whether it's a counselor or even just a safe support system, find someone who can be unapologetically in your corner and can help you face reality cost. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, we'll have that episode. We'll just have to do it on, on integration yeah. of the mind. I, I think it's so important. So look for that in the next few months. Um, it's tough when you, when you're only going every two weeks, there's so much to cover. But, yeah. but for those listening, the, the quote came to mind um, from, from Dr. LaPera. Uh, she's a, I think she's a psychiatrist, psychologist, but she says, it, it, just a reminder, it is uh, possible and it's human for, for humans to, to feel conflicting things, multiple conflicting yes. things at the same, same time. Yes. And if you don't understand that that's kind of a normal thing for everybody, you can be like, something's wrong with me. I'm broken, dysregulated, boom, day's done. I'm taking a nap. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> so give yourself your self-compassion um, and give yourself time and understand it's a journey. Um, and know that there's, there's more episodes coming of Great Story Podcast. And there's uh, a conference, first weekend of May, for men to come and learn about these very things. This is what we talk about. Um, and this, there's other guys working along with that with you. Go to greatstoryministries.com. Go ahead and sign up for that. And then women, first weekend of November. There's resources. There's people. There's community. Um, and you're you're not alone. You're not alone. Yes. All right. Well, we, we gotta we gotta go. But uh, Ryan, thank you as always for coming on Great Story Podcast. And we'll we'll go ahead and set a date and record that next uh, next episode on integration of the mind. I'm up for it. Look forward to it. And for you, the listener, thank you for joining in. Uh, we're so glad you did. I hope you got something out of it. If you if you got value out of this episode, it'd be so helpful if you uh, just sent this episode to one or two, maybe even three if you're getting crazy, uh, uh, of people that you're like, hey, this is something I'm going through. I'd like you to listen to this. I want to talk about it. Or, hey, uh, this is uh, reminding me of you. Be careful how you do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it'd be so helpful if, if you shared this episode and, and let other people know about Grace Story and all the content here. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us a follow there. Tap a five-star rating and drop a review. If you're listening on Spotify, give us a follow and uh, make sure you to... Uh, to uh, hit that notification bell that they have on there so you don't ever miss an episode like i say every time there is no us without you so get engaged continue on your journey of uh, restoration Uh, there's a lot to go through and we're here for all of it Uh, there is comfort and 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 growth to be had in community Um, so we'll be here in two weeks with another episode and until then we'll be praying for you